This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Well, welcome back to the afternoon and to the dialogue that we're developing between neuroscience and Buddhism. Uh, we had a very exciting morning, and at the end of the morning, many of you will remember that uh, there really was uh, an issue about uh, the definition of craving. And His Holiness would like to clarify for us his definition one more time so we can understand what his thinking is on this. So please, Your Holiness. Cravings So, in this morning's session, we had a um, definition of the term craving from two different perspectives. In Alan's presentation, we heard the traditional Buddhist uh, definition of what craving is, and then we heard the neuroscientific definition of craving. Now, one thing that I would like to clarify is that in the Buddhist definition that was given by Alan, the term, the Tibetan term that was being translated as craving is dochak, which by its very nature is understood to be an afflicted state of desire. And uh, whereas listening to the neuroscientific uh, presentation of the nature of craving, and there wasn't necessarily that element of affliction so uh, I felt that perhaps it would be helpful to clarify where the difference is coming from, so that generally in Buddhism, there is a recognition that desire per se is not necessarily a form of affliction. And desire, in fact, can be an afflicted state of emotion, but also desire can be a simply a neutral state with no particular basis, uh, but also desire can be, in some context, 
from a Buddhist ethical perspective, even a virtuous state of mind as well. So uh, it would be perhaps important to recognize when the word craving is used in a very specific Buddhist context, it need not necessarily mean the same thing as it is defined in the neurobiological uh, context. And one potential area of critical conversation that could occur between these two investigative traditions in future is that his holiness was saying that on several occasions he had made this point because in the Buddhist psychology um, a distinction is made between a kind of a qual two qualitatively different experiences of uh, mental states on the one hand there are sensory levels of experience and there are what the Buddhists would call mental levels of experience such as the thought processes and so on and it seems that in the Western context this categorical distinction between sensory experience on one side and the mental experience such as the thought processes on the other doesn't seem to be clearly demarcated so maybe this is one area where there could be a critical uh, engagement and from the Buddhist point of view, this particular distinctions between the categorical distinctions between the sensory experience on the one hand and the mental, uh, conceptual and thought level of experience on the other would be very relevant to the main topic of this afternoon session, the, the question of suffering. So when we look at the nature of suffering, and there will be a dimension of suffering which will be at the level of the senses. And these sensory level of experience of pain, uh, even in the Buddhist context, um, one cannot uh, envision the possibility of these sensory experiences of pain being transformed into uh, experiences of happiness. But on the level of thought and emotion, then states which may be conventionally uh, regarded as forms of pain and unhappiness, on the level of thought, through creative application of thought and certain transformation of outlook and so on, one can envision the possibility of transforming 
even these unhappy states into a kind of a more positive states. Furthermore, one can also envision the possibility that an individual may be on the level of the senses experiencing pain, but deliberately and intentionally can adopt certain mental states which can, in some sense, overwhelm, uh, kind of, you know, in some sense, kind of neutralize the actual experience of the pain. So that can, can be a possibility as well. So, that's all. <laughs> can there be any, be any uh, question as to why neuroscientists wouldn't want to collaborate with that uh, individual right there? <laughs> My gosh. Um, fascinating. Uh, not just in terms of summing up the morning, but also uh, of providing a way of getting into the afternoon in which we're going to be talking about suffering. So um, our picture of the young girl suffering and wondering what's going through her mind. And again, the invitation toward an understanding of brain and mind that asks the question, what can neuroscientists with their methods and tools and concepts learn and bring to the Buddhists and learn from the Buddhists and vice versa. What can we do together? What's this bridge look like if a bridge might exist? That's the point of the afternoon, just as it was the morning. And when we talked about the topics that we might present, there was a million things we could have talked about as neuroscientists, attention, uh, any number of perceptual uh, concepts. Um, there's no limit to what Buddhists might teach us from their tradition about brain function, about mind function. We thought we'd center the discussions on craving and suffering because they seem so central to Buddhist thought and because they're such, of such great interest to neuroscientists. So this afternoon, we talk about suffering. And suffering in the context of the Four Noble Truths reads as follows. There's the fact of suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end of suffering. And there's a path to end suffering we would very much like to work together to understand suffering and the path to end suffering. So our questions for the afternoon are, how is suffering defined? How does suffering arise? How can we inter intervene to modify or prevent suffering? And how can neuroscientists and Buddhists work together to study suffering? We have another very distinguished panel this afternoon. Just read very briefly something about them. First, on the neuroscience side, Paul Ekman, who's Professor Emeritus of Psychology at UCSF and whose research is on emotion and its expression. Brian Knudsen, you heard from this morning. Brian Wendell is Professor of Psychology at Stanford and a leading investigator uh, involved in understanding visual processing and visual perception. David Spiegel, Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford and Director of the Center on Stress and Health whose work in hypnosis and psychotherapy is extremely important and very highly acknowledged. Helen Mayberg, a colleague, professor of neurology and psychiatry from Emory University, who is among the very most clever, insightful individuals doing imaging studies in the context of mood disorders. On the Buddhist side, Janet Gyatso, professor of Buddhist studies at the Harvard Divinity School, a scholar of Tibetan Buddhist culture. Anne Klein, 
a professor of religious studies at Rice and director there of the Center for Buddhist Practice and Study uh, located in Houston. And finally, Matthew Ricard, a PhD in molecular genetics, uh, a European who took to the science of the test tube and the gene, who pursued that for a number of years, left that to become a Buddhist monk, and now is a private secretary and interpreter for His Holiness. So a distinguished panel. Again, we have the great pleasure of having Thupten Jimpa with us as translator, and of course, our honored guest, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. With that, I'd like to turn, if I could, to David Spiegel, who's going to give us a neuroscience perspective on suffering. Dr. Mobley, Your Holiness, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, the brain is a complex organ. Uh, there are more connections between the neurons in each of your brains than there are stars in the universe. So that means that understanding the way in which the brain works is a challenging and complex task that requires all of our collective brains to understand it. In particular, I think you've just heard from His Holiness, who anticipated most of my talk, as I might have expected, uh, um, that there is agreement in the Buddhist and in the Western neuroscience tradition um, that we distort our perceptions of reality, that what is out there in the world is different from the understanding we make of it, and our understandings of the distortions may be different, but it provides, on the one hand, the possibility that we can amplify suffering in various ways that are maladaptive, but it also potentially provides for therapeutic opportunity. So I hope to briefly review with you the nature of suffering. Uh, I, I thought about the idea of following Dr. Fields with a brief experiment in suffering, but I figured the lecture itself would, <laughs> would do it. So I would offer... Uh, a definition of suffering from a Western neurobiological point of view as being the activation of neural subsystems that trigger feelings associated with distress. And those feelings include pain, fear, anxiety, sadness, and depression. And in these uh, brief comments, I'll concentrate on two, pain and depression as examples. So I'll start first with a brief summary of the neural circuitry of pain. I hope you'll play close attention to this slide, there'll be a short quiz in the next period. Um, the main point of this diagram is to show that pain processing in the spinal cord and the brain is bidirectional. That is, we have pain input through largely these lateral, the lateral spinal thalamic tract. They're small fibers that convey pain signals fairly slowly through primary processing centers in the brain stem, the periaqueductal gray, and then through the cingulate gyrus and the somatosensory cortex, which you've already heard about. Um, but pain processing goes in two directions. So there is top-down influence on pain. It's been called central pain as well, such that input from the parietal cortex, from the cingulate gyrus, from the limbic system, which manages emotions and memory, uh, and the periaqueductal gray can actually change 
the perception and experience of pain and indeed the input of pain from the body. So one way to think of that is that the strain and pain lies mainly in the brain, as you can see here. <laughs> That's the stimulus there. That's the pain. So it suggests that we can amplify or diminish pain. But the main point is that pain hijacks attention. And we tend to feel when we have a painful input that we can't pay attention to anything else. And it can amplify substantially the experience of pain and eventually set up circuits whereby you don't need much pain input to have a rather robust pain experience. Now, there's an analogy to sadness and depression as well. And um, stealing uh, from the work of Dr. Mayberg, who's here and can discuss it, it's clear that there are similar brain circuits that amplify the experience of sadness and depression. And in particular, we know that there is a kind of feedback between the feeling of sadness and a kind of cognitive or mental set that tends to perpetuate sadness. So if you tell a depressed person nine good things and one bad thing, what they will remember is the bad thing. And Dr. Mayberg has been a pioneer in documenting certain parts of the brain that tend to be in part responsible for this reverberating circuit of sadness. And in particular, there are two areas that I'll point out, something she has called the sad node, the uh, subgenual cingulate gyrus, where you have hyperactivation. So you tend to feel more sadness as this part of the brain right near the limbic system, the emotional circuits of the brain, activates while you have decreased activation in the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is a part of the brain where we think and plan. And so you have a combination of continued activation of feelings that make you sad and a reduced ability to process and think your way around or out of that sadness. So you get a kind of reverberating circuit of sadness that you can see depicted here in this sculpture done by a Dutch breast cancer patient. And one remarkable thing is that it's the only sculpture she did in her life before she died, but it depicts her despair about her illness. There's a part of the brain that seems to be particularly responsible for these reverberating circuits, and it's the cingulate gyrus here. It lies below the cortex, above the corpus callosum, and it seems to be a relay center for attention deployment. So you activate the cingulate gyrus when you focus your attention, as hopefully you're doing now, it turns out to be a part of the brain that processes the emotional aspects of pain. So if pain is associated with great fear that an illness is getting worse, or the accumulation of depression, which is a common co-occurrence with pain, you have activity in the anterior cingulate, and I've mentioned already the subgenual cingulate here, where depression tends to reverberate. The parts of the brain right next to the cingulate gyrus are the hippocampus, the limbic system, the parts of the brain involved in memory and emotion. So we can set up a kind of reverberating brain circuit that tends to perpetuate the experience of depression and pain, and in fact one can perpetuate the other, can tend to stimulate the other. And this is one of the brain pathways that tends to keep people stuck in senses of pain and depression. So one can think of it this way, that pain hijacks attention. One of the questions that I hope we'll be able to explore is not just what are the parts of the brain that are involved in pain or in sadness and depression, but what is the rest of the brain doing about it? What can we learn about how the brain can change in its response to these inputs? 
So in pain, you have activation of the emotional aspects of pain in the cingulate, intensification of sensory pain in the uh, parietal cortex, the limbic system, system, the activation of fear, anger, and sadness in relation to pain, memory of threats associated with the pain in the hippocampus where memories are processed, and primary pain processing in the brainstem. For depression, you have these reverberating circuits. You have the sad note in the cingulate gyrus. You have the, the rigid negativity of thought that comes with decreased activity in the frontal lobes. You have activation of sadness in the, hippocamp in the, in the limbic system and the constant memories of failures and disappointments in the hippocampus. So these two reverberating circuits tend to keep us stuck in situations involving pain. And there's a kind of vicious cycle in which the feelings of sadness lead to negative thoughts, which lead to memories of failure, which lead to more feelings of sadness. Um, what are the therapeutic opportunities? How can we use what we know about these brain circuits to help reduce suffering, reduce pain and depression? Well, the traditional Western approach has been to reduce pain input. So we give opiates, anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, we do nerve blocks to try and block pain input into the nervous system. And sometimes that works, but it's not the whole answer to pain. There are other Western techniques, and I would like to raise one in particular, hypnosis, that perhaps has some analogies to some of the meditative techniques that Buddhists have uh, developed over many, many hundreds of years. Uh, in hypnosis, you can teach people to reduce sensation and reduce distress about pain. It's a state of highly focused attention. There are other techniques like biofeedback. Um, and with depression, we similarly try in Western medicine to change neural pathways, to increase the activity of serotonin, as in the serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants, or norepinephrine, another important neurotransmitter in the brain. There are techniques involving stimulation of various parts of the brain through electrical or magnetic impulses. And there are psychotherapies that try to disrupt this cycle of negative thought and negative feeling or change the way in which people with depression relate to other people. And all of these techniques have some effectiveness. I'd like to give one example of how a technique like hypnosis can be used to have people alter their perception of pain. This is from work by Pierre Rainville at the University of Montreal. They're PET scans. And the point here is that if you hypnotized a group of subjects and either told them they would have an increase or a decrease in pain perception, not only did you change how much pain they reported, the subjective report, but you changed blood flow in the somatosensory cortex here where pain is processed. And you would tell them something like your hand is cool and numb, you'll feel a pleasant tingling numbness instead of the electrical impulse giving a shock. If you did the same thing, but this time just said to them in hypnosis, well, yes, the pain sensation is there, but it won't bother you very much. Uh, it'll not be very unpleasant. There was no change in the somatosensory cortex, but a decrease in activity here in the cingulate gyrus. It went down uh, in proportion to the reduction in pain experience. So just changing the words changed which part of the brain was involved in analgesia. So in a sense, what this shows is that there is a brain correlate of simply a sub change in subjective experience that clinically can be very helpful to people in reducing or eliminating pain. So I would raise the question about the extent to which there is an analogy between a Western technique, hypnosis, that involves absorption, that is highly focused attention, 
uh, dissociation or putting outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness, and suggestibility, a heightened responsiveness to social cues, with some of what I understand to be the major components of mindfulness, focused attention, open presence, and a state of compassion. There has been research done among people who practice meditation, for example, Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin, Lutz and colleagues, uh, published a study recently showing that experienced meditators are able to increase activity in the frontal cortex. This is gamma power, high frequency electrical activity over the frontal cortex, whereas inexperienced meditators trying to do the same thing were not able to do it. So it suggests that meditation may be one way to activate regions in the brain that increase cognitive flexibility, that make it more possible for us to restructure our experiences like pain and sadness. It is also possible that techniques involving compassion can help us reset the brain, that perhaps by connecting with others who are going through similar experiences or have a different take on it, we can begin to experience the way their brains are processing that information and get some distance from the way our own are, as in the slide that Dr. Mobley showed at the beginning, where he showed that empathy for pain tended to trigger a pain response in someone's brain. So in that sense, we may be able to reprogram our own brains by becoming more open to the way other people are managing theirs. So in, it's clear that reverberating circuits can amplify and diminish causes of suffering, such as pain and depression. In Western medicine, we tend to modulate input and manage perception. In mindfulness, the hope is that one can restructure suffering and create compassionate connection. Uh, if I can quote from uh, part of a Western spiritual uh, tradition, William Shakespeare, uh, he wrote in Lear, when we are better see bearing our woes, we scarcely think our miseries are foes. The mind much sufferance doth or skip when grief hath mates and bearing fellowship. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. And now, Mathieu, if you'll, if you'll speak to us. So since also we have been um, somehow, um, sometimes it's difficult to find uh, definitions about what we are talking about. So in case of suffering, it is even more true. Suffering and happiness are very vague terms that can uh, apply to pleasant or depleasant experience or to a deeper state of being. And so suffering in the same way uh, can be a very obvious uh, suffering, a physical pain if you have a toothache, or a mental pain if you are feeling distress and anxiety. So that's the more obvious suffering that everyone will recognize uh, to be suffering. But there's also suffering that is inherent to change, for instance. The fact that everything, at any moment, a pleasant situation can change into its opposite. You go for a wonderful picnic and tragedy occurs. But also there is suffering as a more fundamental vulnerability to unhappiness and to experiencing every moment that passes by as something afflictive, something that uh, is oppressive and therefore tormenting. And so from the Buddhist perspective, this is the most fundamental aspect of suffering because it goes deep at the root of the 
way of experiencing the world and experiencing our own mental states. And as long as there is precisely this inadequation with reality, distortion of reality, mental confusion, and all the afflictions or mental toxins that arise from this distorted perception of the world, of others, of oneself, then it will be very difficult to reach to what we may call genuine happiness or well-being, which is not simply uh, a pleasant state of mind, but which is more a optimally or exceptionally healthy state of mind, a way of being that perdures throughout different emotional states and that can have the inner resources to deal with whatever may come one's way in life. And so perceiving that way, we see that uh, the opposite of well-being is very much a way of experiencing the world and experiencing your own uh, mind stream. In that sense, from what Isolness was saying about the basic uh, sensory perceptions and then the way the mind experiences it, we see that it certainly can over, the way the mind experiences things can override these outer conditions. And fortunately, that's all for our benefit. Uh, because if happiness depended upon a complete mastery over the outer circumstances and of fixing all the causes of sorrow and pain in the outer world, then there will be no chance for a, a genuine, lasting uh, well-being and getting rid of this experience of unhappiness. Our control on the world being um, very limited, uh, temporary, and often illusory. We think we are in charge, but everything will collapse the next day. However, if we think of the inner conditions, then that's basically the way our mind functions. And we sort of much more within our capacity to exploit the potential for change. So a striking example was given once by Zolines about how the mind can override the outer circumstances. He was saying while visiting Portugal and seeing a lot of construction happening in the day, that if you become the happy owner of an extraordinary luxurious flat at the 100th floor of a super modern high-tech skyscraper and move in but you are in total state of distress, all you are going to look for is a window from which to jump. <laughs> On the opposite, we know all in our life, in our own experience and that of others, and that a state of mind that has inner strength, inner freedom, that comes with a cluster of human qualities can withstand adversity, difficult circumstances, and maintain that state of mind. And so, in a way, then the second step comes into identifying what are the mental factors, the way of experiencing things that will undermine well-being and create torment. What are the other ones that will nourish well-being and therefore decrease your unhappiness? And so, hence, the distinction between afflictive state of mind and positive or constructive state of mind. And desire, which we discussed this morning, is a typical example. Desire is simply a force towards something, accomplishing or obtaining something or avoiding something. Now it becomes afflictive when some element of grasping 
brings unsatisfaction and is experienced as suffering. So and as an, an aspiration to accomplish your own well-being and that of others, what else could we wish? As a compulsive desire that's constantly nagging and tormenting your mind, who will want to experience that? So in a way, uh, suffering, therefore, obviously, in terms of physical pain and other uh, negative experiences can be triggered and greatly influenced by outer conditions. But it is not essentially dependent on outer conditions because it is a way of experiencing things. In itself, uh, suffering is never desirable. But the, now, as, we, as you mentioned, how can we, once we experience it, in terms of physical pain or mental difficulties, how can we use it? How can we, on the base of that experience, transform it or use it for a different purpose to develop human qualities or spiritual qualities? Or how can we avoid our mind being hijacked by the perception of pain or, or mental, physical or mental pain? So hence, the idea of uh, using strategies. If the pain is there anyway, or the suffering is there anyway, what can we do either to, uh, dis to dissolve it or to use it as a tool of transformation. For instance, you mentioned about the mind being hijacked by pain, by pain physical pain. Hijacked means again and again, there's nothing but pain in the mental landscape. So what is the mental landscape except a chain of thoughts, mental construct based upon a physical sensation? Now, if you can change the content of the mental construct, then obviously the experience will be very different. So you mentioned use of imagery, for instance. This is a, a technique that is, has been found to be one of the most useful in alleviating migraines and, and other chronic pains so that you don't fall into depression. Likewise, uh, in the Buddhist practice, there has been a lot of use of mental imagery. And just to give you a very simple example, you might visualize the Buddha or whoever you like, in your heart. And from this body emanates a very, very blissful, warm, and luminous nectar. It's just an image. And gradually fills up your whole body. And so if you visualize that happening gradually and dissolving the pain, this mental image is a very positive effect and state of mind. So that can hijack the mind, but in a way that is freeing from the afflictive experience of the uh, physical pain. You could also use, as you mentioned, the cultivation of compassion and altruism to alleviate at least the perception of your own pain as why me, and then being overburdened by this personal pain, by thinking there are so many sentient beings who go through similar suffering, probably worse, and instead of that rumination of your own pain, suddenly being open to the wish, I wish to, it would be so good if I was free from this pain, but also if all sentient beings were free of this pain. And that somehow expanding the field of your perception and thoughts will also, and the fact that altruism and compassion are essentially positive effect and perceive as components of well-being, they will naturally dissolve your more limited perception of your own pain or suffering. 
You could also examine pain or suffering as a phenomena instead of completely associating with it. Just look at it as something happening, as you would look as a, at a fire, as, you, as someone you will look children being playing. Instead, you will look as a, as a feeling, as something you can look at and examine its own nature. You could also examine the nature of the suffering mind and see that beneath the veils of the chain of thoughts, there is a basic awareness that remains, whether you suffer, whether you enjoy pleasure or pain. And it's like the depth of the ocean compared to the pleasure and pain, which are either a calm, peaceful ocean or a storm, which always happen in life. But it's a, a deeper dimension of experience related to the sort of basic nature of consciousness and awareness. Somehow, that perspective allows you not to be too much only uh, within the experience of relentless pain. Now, in terms of mental suffering, in the same way, in deep depression, one of the characteristics, the mind is hijacked by relating everything to your own feeling, perception, how you feel, what is that? And you feel there's no way out of that very limited sphere of self-centeredness. So here again, something like opening oneself, although it's difficult, and one of the characteristics of depression is feeling the, being unable to give and to perceive love from others or loving kindness. Instead of the mind being hijacked by this constant rumination of self-centeredness, if we can open it precisely to the attention on loving kindness and meditation, that's also a reverse process of hijacking, but here, with something that's going to free oneself from rumination. So in this way, we can see that basically our unhappiness or suffering being the way we experience things every moment that determines the quality of every moment that passes by. There are a great number of skillful means that can help you to transform this perception, to transform the way you see the world, you perceive the sen sens sensation, and then the cognitive superimposition or mental construct that either increases or may decrease suffering. So here we have an understanding of suffering as a way of experiencing things, as a way of being, and an insight about various skillful means that we could use to alleviate its experience. Thank you. The, the mental images that linger from those presentations are hijack on the one hand and transformation on the other. Beautiful differences, polar opposites. I wonder, David, there's a lot of resonance in the two statements. There's a lot in common there. I wonder if you would just highlight for me what you think are the key points of agreement between you and Mathieu. Um, I think there is uh, a tremendous amount of agreement, and in particular, I think what Matthew highlights is that a distinction between process and content, that there is the content, for example, of the, the pain input, the nerve impulses coming up into the spinal cord, but then the actual experience of pain is a brain process that involves attention to it, your interpretation of it, the emotions that come along with it, and that it is possible by reflecting on your pain experience, either by opening yourself, as he suggested, 
to replacing it with more positive experience, transforming it in some way, or just reflecting on what it means for your brain to be experiencing discomfort as opposed to other experiences, that it deprives the pain of its ability to hijack attention. And I think, as in this morning's discussion as well, the issue of choice and control is critical. So that if you can find ways not to pretend the input isn't there, but to make a choice about how you attend to it and to use what options you have to transform it, there is real therapeutic potential. Great. Helen, a thought? Well, I think that what strikes me over and over again is this um, image of balance. And that suffering, as you say, exists. And I have to come from the perspective of illness because that's what I study. And illness becomes a very good example to look at the extreme in the negative direction of people suffering in the same way as looking at monks doing very highly skilled meditative processes allows us to look at the positive side. And from our perspective, looking at extremely ill patients, the problem is, is the brain is hijacked by and in, in fact as these limbic areas become takeover. By definition, they enslave the cortex and the mind has no ability whatsoever to participate. And the process of recovery becomes one of trying to reestablish balance, that one loses the ability to actually bring online the mind to participate and move in a positive direction. And we assist the brain, if you will, by actually working first on pushing down the pain, whether it be pharmacologically or otherwise, in order to allow the mind to be back in the position to be able to engage in a positive way. What we have learned is that while many patients make those attempts themselves, just like with the process of learning meditation, it's extremely hard. And if you're fighting against yourself because the suffering is pulling you down, that you really can engage in an effective way the things that you may want to do. So I've always wanted to ask um, um, the Dalai Lama, quite frankly, if you want to try very hard to be able to achieve very high states and you are highly motivated and you are not ill, why is it so difficult? Why does it take so long? I know why with patients it takes us a while to get them well. We need to bring them back into balance to even begin to train the mind to be stronger. But in fact, it says something about the nature of how the brain is wired, that in fact even people who don't start at the disadvantage of illness have to work very hard to bring these contemplative and reflective and, and compassionate areas online. And it takes a long time even for someone who is so highly motivated. So it's much different for someone who is sick. And I would love at some point to um, answer that question. <laughs>
When it comes to the question of growth, even in the case of a flower, it takes, it needs time. <laughs> nature, nature. <laughs> all these works, all these change, you say, ultimately have to go according to nature. So take time. Um, another point His Holiness was uh, referring earlier is that there is uh, an understanding in the Buddhist tradition where um, this is a practice referred to as uh, the yoga of the energies and, uh, um, and this is related to the yoga practice as well where there is an understanding that through manipulation of energies within the body one can even um, uh, manipulate the, the ex sensations of the pain themselves. Not only mind, but with mind, there's another kind of energy we usually call inner air. Uh, so that uh, one way is to reduce pain or so there is an understanding that uh, you know as an advanced meditator who have gained a certain degree of mastery over this particular technique of manipulating the energy the prana and they may be even able to uh, uh, change the, the quality of the experience themselves on the sensory level. Just in response to that, I think that fits with what we know about the wiring diagram of the brain. We can talk in a very um, rudimentary way about the limbic, sort of the body hijacking the mind, and, but the mind at the same time gives back information to the body. And whether you call it energy or you call it pain, that at various levels, if we can define how the system is communicating, then we can test by taking people skilled at looking at how one uses the mind to control these systems in the brain that generally aren't under our voluntary control, but obviously can be trained to do so. And I think that with patients or even with just regular people suffering, what our goals are often driven by is just getting back to a neutral place. And it's the opportunity, I think, by these dialogues with um, Buddhists and neuroscientists is take advantage of not just making sick people at least well, but how to enhance um, um, wellness. 
and, and that will actually help to prevent um, illness in future, and I think that's um, an opportunity here. Matthew, please say. It's really clear that sometimes we are too weak to become strong. Yeah. So that's why we sometimes need to, at a time where things are not too bad, sort of already gain some inner strength. And actually, I would be, it would be so surprising if this would happen so easily and so quick. We, we are used to be ready to spend 15 years getting education and then training into some professional job and health fitness and looking nice and so forth. By which miracle, without doing anything special to train and transform the mind, would that happen by itself? That would be a, a real mystery. Well, can I <laughs> yeah. so, so following that, I, I was wondering about um, the development of these, of these skills. The, facing it at the end, when you're already depressed or in, in a very bad state, is, would of course be very difficult, but there might be some protective value at, at younger training. And I'm wondering about practice and what, uh, how it is people at different ages are, can be properly brought into these kinds of training. It's definitely true. The, the earlier you can you know, uh, intervene in the process, the, the greater the possibility of effectiveness. And also, uh, generally, it is more effective to try to have preventative you know, approach rather than trying to wait until things actually you know, fully manifest. Because once the, 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 the depression has reached to its really low level, it's very difficult to try to if there are certain kinds of things that, for example, an eight-year-old can appreciate, uh, but that they're not ready for also, and whether there have been refined thinking about the kinds of emotional experience that would protect an eight-year-old, and maybe by the time they're a teenager, it would be a different set of things. And I, I, here, of course, there's a great deal of thinking about developmental processes and the changes of the brain over age. It will be a fantastic uh, field of research, yeah, topic for research. His Holiness often emphasizes about education again and again that uh, the main focus is on acquiring information and knowledge and developing reasoning and intelligence. But for a various number of reasons, the cultivating of human values and emotional balance and altruism is Nobody knows how to handle that. It used to be the role of religions and whatever, or the parents. You know, the generation of parents are those who have gone, with not going through this. So there is a, a, a seems to be, people don't know how to approach uh, teaching human values or cultivating them. And uh, there must be ways, not giving a, a sort of exotic name, you know, cultivating emotional balance. Or I have a friend in France who is teaching secular training to attention in school. Kids love that. You know, just working a little bit with their minds yeah. and uh, asking questions, you know, debates with even young kids. Yes. And you'll be surprised how they are receptive, yeah. actually. Just teaching attentional control directly. A couple of points I'd like to make. Uh, one is that we don't come equipped with the emotional skills that will allow us to achieve enduring happiness. We have to learn those skills. And uh, the history of 
the human race uh, doesn't testify to the fact that an awful lot of people learn those skills very well. Um, the, but there is choice. One has to have both choice and patience. Um, I'm really worried about this term hijack because it implies that someone else is taking us over. It is us who's taking us over. It is within us, and the choice is within us. Now, people, others can help us. The compassion of another person can help us, as can a pharmacological or other medical stimulation, allow us to get to the point where we can begin to make the changes and learn the skills, but we shouldn't think that it's external. It's all within us. And nearly all of us have that capacity, if we'll invest the time, to learn how uh, to do this. Um, the, I think there, another area that I hope will we'll come to at some point, I don't know if this is the right point, is what, it is not just to reduce suffering, but it is to achieve happiness. But what is that happiness? And um, through the thinking provoked by past encounters with people like Matthew and His Holiness, I think you can distinguish five very different kinds of happiness, only one of which are the Buddhists talking about, and most Westerners misunderstand them and think that they're talking about one of the others. So I don't know if this is a reasonable... Please, continue. Please. Okay. So, We're waiting. <laughs> I should say I am not a neuroscientist. I, not that I wouldn't like to be. It would be a wonderful thing to be. I'm a psychologist who studies emotion. And uh, I distinguish 14 different types of enjoyable emotions. Uh, you already had one this morning. After you were allowed to stop holding your breath, you felt relief. That feels good. It's an enjoyable emotion. Many times you've laughed. That's amusement. Amusement and relief are as different as fear and anger. And there are 12 others I'm not going to name. But th these are momentary states. They can last for minutes, but they don't last all day. Then you have moods, like euphoria. Don't have that often enough, but it does happen sometimes, and the whole day, everything is the sun. It's every, no matter what, you're in a good mood. Okay? That's not an emotion. Then there's cheerfulness. Do you know a cheerful person? That's a personality trait. They're always seeing the bright side. It's very hard to discourage a cheerful person. <laughs> and you've tried. <laughs> but it's... All of these get covered by the word happiness, but there's also hypomania. That's a psychopathology, okay? It's a very excited kind of happiness. <laughs> but what I think the Buddhists are talking about is something that we don't have a language for, probably because most of us never achieve it, and it's not likely you can achieve it without a lot of practice. It's not going to come in two weeks or from an interactive CD. And the best I can... <laughs> the best I can find in the English language 
is your stance in life, the platform from which you look at and enter life. Now, I think this is what I think, because I'm not there. I think this is what the Buddhists are referring to by sukha. And it is an enduring state, but it's, a chi, it's not a given. Uh, and it's not like learning to ride a bicycle. It takes longer, and it takes skill to develop. Say, Paul, say again. <laughs> Stance in life? Yes, it's your stance or your platform. <laughs> it's the basis on which you meet the world. And it, it now, now I'm, I'm stealing Buddhist terms, sorry, but I don't know the right ones. There's equanimity, there's balance in all senses of that word. Uh, Alan Wallace introduced me to the importance of balance. I sort of see that in throughout life, there's always a question to, be, to stay balanced in every respect. And then there's a clarity. And all of those give you a foundation in your life. But we don't start with it. it it's not like everyone will learn to walk unless there's some serious neurological damage. But it, we need skills I think there are some skills from the West that we can combine with skills from Buddhist practice that will enable us if we will invest the time. His Holiness says it takes time to grow a flower. Absolutely. We are so impatient in this world, in the West, to expect that the, all of the gifts of life are going to just come fast. But that's not the case. I wish they were, but it isn't the case. <laughs> Janet, please respond. I wanted to say two things, and one is taking up where you started, and also to add to the many uh, techniques that Mathieu gave us about ways of dealing with suffering, to add another, I think, very, very basic one from Buddhism is to remember that the whole discussion of suffering the Buddhist perspective on suffering is that suffering is, you know, it's the first noble truth. Suffering is reality. Suffering is the way things are. And I think, first of all, to, to recognize that for Buddhists, suffering is pervasive. Suffering is everywhere. And that uh, I think part of, a, a very important part of a Buddhist definition of happiness is that there is a correspondence between your state and reality and to, in fact, be in accord with reality, as it's said in Buddhism, to see things as they really are. And one of them has to do with expecting suffering and being prepared for suffering. I think that it has a great deal to do with how you react when you do suffer. If your fundamental expectation is impermanence, death, things are going to go wrong. I think that has an enormous, uh, and ironically, that often that, that really frees us, is when we're really expecting things to really suck most of the time, that you get, <laughs> that you get a certain freedom, and you get a certain... <laughs> but I, I wanna, that's, that was the first point I wanted to make, and the, the second... <laughs> the second goes back to Helen's question, why is it so hard? 
and I, we've all been answering this in various ways. I think it's instructive. There's a, another very, very uh, basic distinction in Buddhism about practice, which has to do with a distinction really precisely between practice and insight, or meditation and insight, and that there is a very pervasive teaching that it's one thing to cognitively understand something, and it's another thing to habitually embody uh, an understanding. And those are really two different things, and you need both of them. And even though you can intellectually understand something, it's very, very hard to change your basic emotional structure. And that's where this notion of ha habituation is a very, very important concept in Buddhist practice, and dehabituation and rehabituation. But that can never happen in a flash. By its very nature, it requires repetition. It requires a long time. The thing about children, you know, that I think is there's not so much um, reflection on that in Buddhism. But one of the things you, you do see, at least in the training of monks, young monks or young nuns, uh, one of the things I do think that children are habituated into is this just the very notion that one does have to have a certain kind of discipline. So even just the expectation that you have a habit of practicing just that itself, even without, even if you're too young to understand these larger philosophical concepts and so on. I think that at least happens at a very early stage, especially when children who are being brought up to be serious uh, practitioners um, get it. Brian. I, I wanted to t come back to the very first thing that you, rose, that you raised and that has also been part of the conversation, which is seeing reality. There, there are these moments of seeing reality versus not seeing it correctly. And one of the big themes in sensory uh, science, uh, the eyes and ears, is the notion that we never actually see reality in the way that um, a physicist with a machine that could measure all the radiation in the room would see, would see things. Uh, and that, in fact, nearly everything that we experience is a kind of story that our brain assembles from the data that are acquired by our, by our eyes. And that the ability to assemble this and disassemble this is part of um, the very basic judgments we make, like how bright is something or how dark is something, not for just complicated, extraordinary things, but just for the very simplest things. So when it comes back to, uh, and, and moreover, the idea that you're seeing, that you would have to see things correctly, therefore, becomes a little shaky for me as a neuroscientist, as, as a vision scientist, because um, you, there's a healthy way to see things but I'm not sure that there's a correct way to see things. And so I wanted to come, I, I just wanted to have some discussion about that. Thank you. Well, first of all, about reality. Of course, reality of suffering is the reality of a deluded mind. And that's why we suffer. So we are a little bit careful when we speak of reality because precisely uh, being more in adequation with reality dispels one of the major causes of suffering. So when you say about uh, uh, it's a healthy way of seeing things, sometimes it's also a correct way. For instance, if you see things as permanent, and therefore, you know, this is mine because this was mine yesterday, or I'm supposed to last, and then therefore that grasping to that, when that thing disappears, 
and suffering comes. So it's a more correct way to see that this is changing every single moment, therefore it's bound to decay and I'm bound to die. So it's more correct. Now, believing that something is intrinsically beautiful or ugly... It's not cheerful, no. Well, no. <laughs> but still, it avoids a lot of trouble instead of clinging desperately to that stuff of being yours. Now, again, if you think that this flower is intrinsically beautiful and therefore desirable, this is not correct. Now, what the whales will do, uh, think about this flower, not much. <laughs> so therefore, again, a more correct way of seeing that pleasantness and unpleasantness, beauty and ugliness are the interdependence between your way of consciousness works and the outer phenomena. <laughs> so again, it's more correct to see that way that saying this is beautiful or that person is my enemy is terribly bad. So there's still an element of it's healthier because less torment. Yes. So I want to jump on the healthy part. As a, uh, <laughs> in clinical practice, just talking about impermanence. So um, just with, with people who have anxiety disorders, there's a negative self-belief. And when a person holds that belief, there's something wrong with me. It triggers all kinds of negative interpretations, negative feelings. In the middle of um, training people in mindfulness practice, mindfulness meditation, literally sitting and teaching people to not change the content Cognitive therapy focuses on challenging and changing the thought, which is a lot of work. And I don't know what is true or not true, but what can be helpful is when we, when we train people with anxiety disorders to notice that whatever I'm thinking and feeling in my body is changing from moment to moment to moment to moment, not intellectually, but actually noticing that. So whatever thought I have, I'm a failure. I'm horrible. I'll never be well. It's just changing, changing, changing. So when they have just even a little bit of an experience of that, the, this impermanence of anything that occurs in my body, in my mind, and these are not the major meditators. We're talking just two months of meditation. There's a loosening from the solidity of the thought, the grasping of the thought. And I would also argue, or I would propose, I should say, that when a person, one of these anxiety patients, has a feeling, has experience that this thought is not me. There is a certain relief, pleasure, positive emotion. I don't know what the correct label for that emotion is, but it's almost a sense of relief that whatever goes through my mind stream is not necessarily me. And when they have that experience, that's a certain amount of liberation, even if it only lasts for a short time. So we do talk about you know, people doing 30, 40 years of meditation, but even short term, people can have little experiences that are a glimpse about how the mind works. Not changing the content, but how the mind works. And that's where Buddhism can contribute a lot. And there are other aspects of mindfulness that are also important that I want to mention because I feel that one of the things that can help us work together is to uh, elaborate and embellish the vocabulary of feeling, emotion, mind processes, the science of mind as Buddhism understands it, and see then if on the neurological side there's something that this inspires you to do that you might otherwise not otherwise do. So for example, mindfulness, in addition to being helpful in the ways that you just mentioned, 
also in certain texts, particularly emphasized actually in the uh, Theravada and the Pali tradition, there are all sorts of, but also in the Tibetan tradition, there are all sorts of mental factors and qualities that just come in together simultaneously with mindfulness. One of them is uh, called pleasurable interest. There's just a naturally pleasing quality to mindfulness, which I would say is in addition to and distinct from the relief that one might get by noticing that, oh, this state of anguish that I'm having in this moment you know, changes from one moment to the next. And that brings me back to something that you said, Paul, about happiness. And one of the things that Buddhism emphasizes greatly, as His Holiness said yesterday, the happiness that Buddhists are fundamentally talking about is not a happiness that is a happiness about anything. In other words, it's not dependent on an external object in the way that craving, as Alan discussed this morning, in other words, it has something to do with the very wherewithal of the mind itself that by its nature in some way when sort of left alone or relieved of some of the impinging veils and afflictions, if you get right down to it, there's actually something quite blissful there. That's the claim of many meditation systems. And I would guess that that would be a challenge and I would be interested in how, how that might pan out neurologically when there is this difficulty, although from talking with you earlier, I understand not as ironclad a difficulty as I might have thought in distinguishing mind from brain. Um, but I think that's somehow a very fruitful area actually for us to begin to consider how to talk about this a brain-mind thing because, uh, again, from talking with you earlier, I understand it's not such an ironclad identity, uh, perhaps, as a very, very close relationship that can't quite, can't experimentally be identified and therefore is just kind of left in a, well, we don't, we don't exactly know. So there's this thing about happiness and sort of the intrinsic nature of perhaps mind, which is a big topic in Buddhism, and it has everything to do with being in tune with reality, as Janet said. One of the things, since we're talking about choice, in, in Buddhist practice, we don't really talk about choice as such, it seems to me, but we talk a lot about aspiration and possibility and hope. And one of the uh, very soothing things about Buddhist practice, it seems to me, is that if you're not there, you can think about it. And you can think about it in a way that may actually help you get there. So I'm not as compassionate as I'd like to be. I admire the compassion of great spiritual teachers. What am I going to do? Berate myself? No. I can imagine myself compassionate. Uh, I can think about the reasons why I should be compassionate. His Holiness wrote many years ago that our compassion is not just sheer emotion, another word we could talk about a lot, by itself, but it's based on reasonings, which I understand to mean it's based on principles, which, again, going back to what Janet said, we can, according to Buddhist ways of practice, we can actually move from ideas and ideals that we have, the conceptual, the cognitive, over which we have a certain amount of control, to the fully felt, embodied, 
passionate experience of compassion. Now that's a claim that we can move, therefore, from the cognitive, wherever that might be in the brain, I don't know, to wherever the feeling centers of the brains are. And that's a claim that really goes against quite a lot of Western thinking, with the rational being so separate from the emotional. So I'd love to hear what you uh, neurologists have to say about those three things. I'll jump in because this is really. <laughs> I think again, what what I'm suddenly having a little light bulb go on about from what you just said is, we attempt to binarize. I think neurologically, I mean, we're very happy when we sit and say we can localize limbic cognition, you know, limbic cortex, they're in a reciprocal relationship to each other as though the system is only one or the other, emotion, reason, and, and this has been Cartesianly defined for many years. We have neurobiological models about that. You saw my pictures of the limbic system turns on, the cortex turns off, and that's all it's about. Well, what's not in that picture is a third layer, and that is of this sense of self, and sense of compassion, empathy. And that area of the brain has also been studied. Philippe has studied it. We have studied it. Many people have studied it. And what's unique about that brain area is that it communicates with thinking, with rationality, with goal-directedness. So the interaction of you, self, with the outside world and how you interact back and forth. And one can define the brain circuitry in that part of the triad. But at the same time, the outside world relates to you internally, and you're always evaluating your internal state relative to, is what I'm feeling really about me? So am I self-absorbed or not? The negative bias, say, of suffering for pain or depression. The idea is, look, snap out of it. I mean, why is everything negative in the world so self-personal? Well, if you could snap out of it, you would. That's why you're not well and you need help to be able to disengage. But I kind of see, at least experimentally, from looking at empathy, compassion, and self, one is the opposite of the other. To be self-centered is to, by definition, be difficult to be open and compassionate. But at the level of the brain, they actually are activating the almost identical same brain region. So the issue is, is how does the self empathy relate to the body and at the same time relate to the world? And, and self related to the world is compassion and self related to the body is pain. And what therapy can do is modulate different arms of this circuit. Drug interacts on different components of this triad. And together, you have re-equilibration, rebalance in all of it. So I think that in thinking about where these different layers reside, it isn't a binarization, it, and I doubt it's only a trinerization. But the trinerization of self and compassion provides almost a fulcrum for thinking about how one relates to internal state and how one relates to the stimuli of the outside world. Janice. Um, one thing that comes out of what you and Anne were talking about just now is an interesting distinction in Buddhism between being self-centered in a negative way and something that's sometimes called uh, in Tantra Buddhism 
uh, pride of the deity, you know, that there's a certain self-assurance that one has at a very high level of Buddhist realization. That, and in fact, they even use the very same word pride or conceit that has a negative resonance. And there is something about a sense of self that you, you were maybe alluding to which can be very positive that isn't a, a reified self, it isn't a permanent self. It's not a self that you're attached to, but a certain, uh, maybe that's similar to the platform that you were talking about. But that I think would be an interesting thing to test if we're talking about types of neurological testing. So see, are, are those two sort of self-absorption or the sort of higher sense of who you are in this more enlightened way, are they located in the same, um, uh, part of the brain or not, or are they entirely different sort of neuro neuro neurological experiences? I think that would be very interesting. I, I, I've got a nod from our, our leader over here, so I can jump, jump in. Um, I, I would like to give a sense of the neuroscience. I'm, I'm a little concerned that some of these concepts that we're talking about, these are very deep philosophical concepts, and you know, neuroscience maybe is not so deep yet. <laughs> got a ways to go. Uh, uh, and and even even simpler things. I mean, the, the, the kinds of things that one, when one is in the clinic and interacting with a patient, or when one is in the lab studying somebody, there are very simple questions that we don't, as neuroscientists, have a grip on. I'm concerned that if if we start with our neuroscience at these very high levels, it it will not be productive for us, or and and probably not for you. But simple things that I, I would have been just would love to understand more of just the simple concept of you, who are you, is a, I think a real mystery. Uh, just considering questions like I don't know if you all probably these are very famous. So many of you know these uh, experiments where uh, in epilepsy sometimes the brain uh, is split into two parts to prevent the seizures from going from one hemisphere to the other. And then you confront an individual whose uh, two halves of the brain are not in their normal state of communication. And you can almost have different interactions with the right part of the brain and the left part of the brain, uh, one more through language and the other more through drawing. So I've been wondering if uh, there is, in fact, in contemplative practice and in thinking about uh, as you bring yourself forward and bring yourself together, if there are these hijacks could be perceived or could be studied by uh, thinking harder, and you might reveal even in the normal healthy brain that there are a multiplicity of forces at work and that these might be isolated and, and understood. Well, that made it a lot simpler, didn't it? Neuroscience <laughs> 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 is deep. <laughs> the questions are deep. We'll get back to that, Brian. That's you. Yes, I mean, just uh, it's related to that also what Janet said about the difference between self-importance and self-confidence. Because self-importance and self-confidence is actually totally different experience. Exacerbated self-importance is a target to all our torments. It's because of that that you feel offended, put down, or you get angry, it's unjust, you feel jealous, envious, all arrogance and depression, and feeling self-contempt or something. Now, self-confidence is just the opposite. Exacerbated self-importance gives a feeling of insecurity because it's always the target of everything and everybody and all your own thoughts that arise as enemies. So now self-importance, self-confidence comes precisely from inner freedom from that. So it seems, you know, like what you're saying about the, 
this pride of, of is pride of recognizing that there's a possibility of being free from self-importance, of excessive self-centeredness, of excessive self-cherishing, and therefore the confidence that now you have the resources to deal with precisely all those arrows that comes to you ceaselessly, and hence confidence instead of insecurity. Well, can you ever feel that there are two threads at the same time, one that is dealing with it properly and one that is not, and you can balance these, uh, kind of experience these two different well, ongoing conversations? Of course, fear that if you are about to be run over by an elephant, it's nice to have immediate fear, but fear that comes from constant feeling of insecurity, that's basically because your mind is not functioning in an optimal way. So that's completely different. David. Um, I'd like to address a question to His Holiness because it strikes me in what we've heard so far, there is an easy way and a hard way to deal with suffering. And the easy way is transform it, reduce it, have happy thoughts instead of sad thoughts. Uh, but you've pointed out that suffering is a part of the human condition. There's an old French saying that he who is laughing hasn't heard the bad news yet. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it seems to me that particularly, as you've spoken, the practice of compassion often means being in tune not only with your own natural state of suffering, but with others' natural state of suffering. And certain of the Buddhist practices involve actually going into the pain or suffering rather than going away from it. And I wonder if you could explain to us, from your point of view, how entering suffering, your own or someone else's, actually can relieve suffering. ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、ま、
Anda nincisi derdi ya. Peki, randa ne var? Rangı çeki, ne ne konu çıktı ya? Ben dükkanı sesim seyir, ses çeşir var. Şimdi dedi, ya, tırdurdu, rancın dışarıda var. Şimdi rancın dışarıda olmayın var. Şen, randa ne var? Dümün müdür, devam edin, gün dışarıda. Zevesan bir kere var. Dedi, zevesan bu olmadığında, dedi, münetene inim durdu. Tacıdır, şenle zevesan bu koramadığında. Nice. And also within our experience of um, compassion, uh, we need to be able to distinguish between. Um, again, we need to distinguish between different types of compassion. Uh, in one sense, you can have an empathy, very strong empathy, and compassion towards someone who's very close to you. But in these cases, it's in some sense self-referential. Because self-referential, it is it, uh, the, the premise upon which that compassion arises is a certain relationship between, it's a self-referential relationship. Whereas one can also uh, imagine a different kind of compassion where the compassion arises simply on the basis of a recognition of the equality the sameness of oneself and others in so far as the wish to for happiness is concerned wish for overcoming of suffering is concerned and there there is no self referential dimension so that's a that's a slightly more higher form of compassion from the buddhist point of view ที่ทอยงอยากสอบได้ที่นึกอยู่ก็ได้ก็ได้เลยเอ่อดูรู้ยงสติได้อันนี้เสียงจิตตรงนี้สัมมิตั้งเลยเลยตรงนี้ก็
or particularly one's own enemy, uh, as far as their attitude to me is concerned, they are hostile. But still they are sentient beings. So they have a right to overcome suffering, yet they are passing through difficulties. So develop some kind of sense of concern. That is the genuine compassion. So first, you see, make distinction, these two things, then test what is going on here. If still same, then I feel our brain is very foolish, cannot distinction. This is, this is one of those experiences where you really understand how that incisive thinking completely defines a 20-year research program. <laughs> but a really important one. Yeah. Philippe, did you want to say something? Um, about that experiment in particular. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that um, in working, when, I, when I've been doing these mindfulness meditation classes, where we, we don't speak much, we sit and meditate with people with um, anxiety disorders, adults. When I ask them to try to generate some compassion for, uh, to visualize other people, friend, stranger, enemy, to try to generate a feeling, ge try <laughs> to generate a feeling of compassion and thinking, may you be free, may you have mental ease. When it's for the other, focus, they could do it. Then I say, now visualize yourself sitting in front of you. And then many people in the room began to cry. And so they began to cry because the feeling of trying to generate compassion for their self actually caused some kind of sadness, pain, confusion. Easier to generate the compassion for the others, but for themselves, it actually caused there's the, the, the um, state, the, the thinking is so confused or distorted that it made them sad. It made, it's hard to generate, so it, perhaps a sense of failure, perhaps feeling um, shame, feeling uh, I'm not good at this, thinking I'm not good at this, feeling shame, feeling upset. So this whole, what I, I really appreciate that you make this distinction about trying to generate compassion for outside others and trying to generate compassion for self this is probably in the brain and also behaviorally, it's, it's very different. It has, it's differentially difficult to do. Mm -hmm. So for some people, it's very painful. It's difficult to do. Easier than outside. <laughs> Helen, did you want to say something? I just wanted uh, thank you for the very insightful neuroscience. You should be a reviewer for Journal of Neuroscience. <laughs> um, it brings up an interesting point about when a scientist tries to design an experiment based on their own experience of what you believe to be what you are testing. And you said it so beautifully because, in fact, when you go to test, so you say, here is pain, here is what, let me do an experiment of thinking what it would be like to have pain, imagine pain, and then this lovely experiment that said, let me imagine the empathy to watch someone else's pain. Whenever these experiments are done, they are done with watching the pain of someone you already care about, as opposed to the generalizability about why should it, why should it light up an area that only lights up my own brain with pain when it's somebody I care about, as opposed to it should be equally bad to experience anybody's pain. 
but we design the experiments assuming that we maximize the brain signal by this, um, that, or that we're actually controlling the experiment better by setting it up with a familiar um, person. And it really gets at what neuroscience in its stepwise progression wants to look at, whereas from the Buddhist tradition, the bigger picture is about having the sense for the entire community rather than just for your circle. So it, the experiment is not difficult to do. It just has not been in our mindset. So it's really a lovely um, thought. But it may reflect that we've been wrong about the nature that the empathy and the self-pain is the same because, in fact, it is the same. We actually haven't tested the, the other, and it, we won't know that it's the same or different till we do it. You know, the other comment that comes to mind... The other comment that comes to mind is this discussion really brings out the notion that the Buddhists would think differently about how to plan an experiment. They'd have different objectives in pursuing it. They'd want the same kind of wisdom to come from it, but it would change the way we did our work if we collaborated. I'm sure we would have a different view of the things that we thought were most important to measure. So this is exciting. <laughs> David. Um, in, in your comments yesterday and today, you've talked a lot about the, the misperception of the nature of reality. And in this discussion, what struck me is a reflection that Western culture is very much focused on the individual and the problems of the individual, and Eastern culture much more sociocentric. And it strikes me in our discussions of suffering that part of the problem from the Western point of view is the focus on oneself being in pain and the lack of focus on one's connection with other people. And so what I hear you saying, and I would appreciate your comment on, is the idea that part of our suffering with pain or depression is our withdrawal into ourselves when it happens and our loss of connection with others. And so the treatment, in a sense, would be reconnection with others. I wonder if you could comment on it. The, the, the concept of compassion that His Holiness was saying that he was referring to here um, is to um, simply draw attention to a certain idea of compassion or ideal of compassion that exists in the Buddhist tradition. But that is not to suggest that this is how, you know, Asians on the whole experience compassion. This, this is an ideal. So uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to generalize uh, a kind of a, a cultural distinction between the East and the West on the basis of 
the way in which they experience pain or the way in which they experience compassion. I mean, even in the Buddhist tradition, there is a recognition that in order to be, uh, successfully cultivate that kind of compassion that has been referred to earlier, first, as a basis, one needs the ability to be sensitive to one's own pain, one's own suffering. So the, the actual cultivation of compassion... So the cultivation of a genuine compassion as defined earlier really proceeds on the basis of first having a deeper sensitivity to one's own pain and suffering and the ability to feel a sense of unbearableness so that you have a, a deep aspiration to overcome it. Once you have that kind of sensitivity, then you then extend it to others and that is compassion. なんて思うんでだから、どうやら僕には言うとか、カチロプロイナ、だから、ちょっと見ぽっちゃちろんたまたんとね。見ぽっかずよ、ちょんえね。ランゴミベンデゼよ、どうやら食っちゃだ。で
kind of a, a, a freedom to it, where the the the, edit, the conception of the self is much more relaxed. It's it's you know it's not this strong clinging, but then that kind of, kind of um, you know um, um, self cherishment may be in fact constructive. So it's very difficult to generalize. So together, so when we are talking about this mental phenomena, we're really talking about a very complex processes. As Anne pointed out, in Buddhist psychology, there is an understanding that even when a single mental event occurs, there are many different aspects to that mental experience, like mindfulness is accompanied with something, some other factors and so on. And then, and on top of that, what are the preceding mental states that could have an impact on that particular event? So all of these somehow needs to be taken into account, which makes the study very complicated. So because of this complexity of the accompanying mental factors um, in Buddhist um, discourse there is a distinctions made of different levels of compassion there can be uh, a compassion, a simple compassion, you know, which empathizes with the pain of another sentient being and feels deeply unbearable of that pain. So that could be simple compassion, empathy, expression of an empathy. But that kind of compassion can be accompanied by a deep insight into the transient nature of the, the sentient being, where there will be a different quality of compassion. Uh, because it's tempered with this insight of of the you know transient nature. Similarly, from the Buddhist point of view, uh, compassion can be accompanied by a deeper insight into this lack of discrete, independent existence of individuals, the self, lack of selfhood. So again, that would be a different form of compassion, where it's tempered by a different accompanying mental um, uh, factor. <laughs> Of course, these are just asides. Brian, I just wanted to say that as a, as a neuroscientist, I find this really useful, this phenomenological dissection of what compassion is. It suggests testable hypotheses. I also wanted to make the caveat that um, at this point, neuroscientists are at a very primitive level. This is what Brian was alluding to. So we can run experiments and say, when the person was excited, we saw more activation in this subcortical brain area. When the person was afraid or felt pain, we see more activation in these, these regions. So I don't want you to think that uh, it's a hopeless case, that, that we can't make these connections. But to hear the sophisticated phenomenology behind compassion in an adept, um, I think also neuroscience right now is at a phase of studying what normal people do, what people normally do, what they generally do. And where we need to move is, is into the realm of studying people who are 
adepts who are, are experts who are, are really good, who use volition to control, say, emotional mechanisms or something like that. And so, again, I think this is extremely useful. For instance, the situation that um, you're referring to suggests an experiment to me. And the experiment is this. If I put an adept in an fMRI machine and I, I show them somebody in pain, it's their enemy. Um, Number one, I should see not only uh, sort of uh, regions of the brain that are involved in thinking and taking another's perspective activate, but also pain centers should activate. What you're suggesting to me is that part, the, the very seed of that practice of, of compassion is feeling pain. And, and we can actually make hypotheses about that. We're not there yet, but um, those experiments could be done. So I just wanted to both say we're at a very primitive stage, and, and I think we can really progress. Uh, this is very helpful. You know, Brian, I, I, there's the refinement. I, so that, thank you. That was actually, I'm in the same department as Brian, but we don't get to talk together very often. So. <laughs> Thank you. That was very helpful. Uh, in, in addition to di dissecting the different types of compassion, and I know that many of you are expert at this, I, I was particularly struck, there's a kind of, at, at your dissection of inward compassion to helping yourself and your family and, and people at a, a distance. There, there are many phenomena um, of some of a much more trivial kind, like, for example, just the simple phenomenon of being able to tickle yourself. You can tickle your child, but you can't tickle yourself. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, right? That, that, that's, and, and the... <laughs> can you do it? <laughs> okay, see, I would have learned something. <laughs> And the, the <laughs> yeah, you try doing this, right? And, and the, the general theory about why such things are, differ between do, doing things to yourself uh, versus other people is you're always predicting your own actions so that uh, when you start to tickle yourself, whatever has, uh, you are aware of what's going to happen, you're constantly anticipating and then uh, for your closer family, maybe you can also anticipate a little bit better. And for people who are further away, you have perhaps the least ability to anticipate. Uh, and so these notions, I wonder if there's a connection between those ideas of prediction in neuroscience and, and the mind, predictive capabilities of the mind, and some of these uh, dif differences that you were describing. I wonder if they map it, or, or any, I know many of you are expert on this. We don't, shouldn't impose on our, on His Holiness. Yeah.
Janet, please. Can I raise another question, which I would also like to address to His Holiness about two different things that came up. They're related. When, people, when some of the neuroscientists here are talking about the empathy for someone else who is in pain, they seem to be saying that, you, that the person who has the empathy will also be experiencing a kind of pain. And I'm, I'm wondering whether you think that's true, that when you're having compassion, say for someone who's having physical pain, when, when you're having the compassion, do you yourself actually also feel the physical pain? So that's one question. And can I add one, one more question? Well.
because if you don't see a possibility of a way out, oh, I see. you may empathize, right. but sometimes they can even be a form of desperation. Mm. But in the latter case, there will be a hope. Right. What, what I, I just wanted to ask, does, for, according to His Holiness, does the enlightened person, or the, let's say the very highly spiritually advanced person, does that person suffer? No. Here we're getting into a different domain. <laughs> now we're talking about high levels of paths and yes. grounds. And right. Image that His Holiness gave some time about compassion being linked with the possibility of uh, change. And probably the person who sees uh, can cry when she thinks of herself because she can see the identify the potential for change. Mm -hmm. So an image that was given once by Solinus, if you see someone that has fallen in the middle of the ocean and you're just looking at that from an aeroplane and you feel very sorry and desperate in a way. So the compassion is, is feeling terribly sorry, but now if you see that though there is a mist, the person doesn't see there's an island, but there's a possibility of getting to that. There's a way for that person to be free and not die. And then your compassion, that is the wish, may that person find that way. There is a potential for change. Then compassion is much stronger. So the insight, which is the, the fourth noble truth, of knowing that there is a way to remedy to the basic causes of suffering, that was give to compassion a much greater magnitude. Help. I'm, I'm going to use it. I was trying to find a way to make this illustration, and I think it just became clear. We have a group of patients that are so profoundly depressed, they've failed everything. Drugs, therapy, more drugs, more therapy, shock. They've exhausted every opportunity to be healed. And we developed a procedure to basically target an area of the brain and to stimulate it and to attempt to turn it off. And in the first few patients we published, it seems to work. What's more interesting is the phenomena that they describe in the operating room while this is happening. And I'll tell you what it is like because it is getting at this idea of being so consumed by the pain, the internal pain that they describe, we cannot attend to anything else but this. So it's not just being hijacked, it is having the pain actually make disable any possibility to think about anything else. In the operating room, when this pain, to our surprise, dissipated, the patients will often say that suddenly they just are more aware and interested and connected to everyone in the operating room. Even though prior to turning this electricity on, they were aware that everyone in the operating room was there to help them. But that they describe in the state of illness, one patient in particular, the one thing I would like to be better if anything could change is I'd like to be able to hold my children and feel them. And this total inability to relate not only to their most personal, you know, their family members, much less to anyone in the environment, any of the people they would ordinarily take care of, their neighbors. But the sudden bringing online of suddenly I am not stuck, but I am open, and that many of the first things they describe is that sense of social connectedness 
even though it's only with the people in the operating room, but translates very soon thereafter to their interaction with their patients. I'm struck by the fact that this set of brain circuits that we tap into isn't about that they then, the first thing they're able to do is they are more attentive, but that it is this sense of interaction. The thing they couldn't do the most, which was relate to others, is a sudden change in this direction. And I think it's a very important clue about when you are doing a, when you are experiencing the pain of others and must feel it, what you do to control to both have the experience but also maintain these other brain areas that allow you to step out and to move out beyond it. And I think we're getting, as I listen to what you say, and I'm trying to use the experience of my patients who are giving me this clue by just, I mean, a, a dramatic thing with an uh, electrical stimulation is tapping into this phenomena in a, in a very unusual way, and I think it's an opportunity to think about those things together. Helen Solens was asking um, when you do this kind of drastic uh, uh, measure of you know using electrodes to to either switch or on or off certain parts of the brain. How long does that effect really last? Well, the difference is that if we turn it right off, the, it will go away. But the goal is to actually have like a pacemaker, like they do in Parkinson's, mm -hmm. where we actually find that what we're doing is, as was talking with, with Paul, is that the patients describe that they've been given nothing. It's not a positive experience of inducing happiness. It is a removal of the negative. Mm -hmm. And that with the removal of the negative, then the rest of the brain is released to go about its business. And then what is required is to then work to retrain. And the patients describe that they've been in this pit to which they cannot escape. And that all the stimulation does is to bring them back to a position where then they can engage in positive thought but that they're aware of that before they could not be there, and that then the stimulation makes a new state of the brain that then they can engage. But we actually leave the stimulation on um, long-term, and, um, and, and, and then we follow um, how they do. How does, I mean, in, in terms of actual practical, uh, how, how is it done? I mean, if it oh, is well, on a continuous basis. Well, it's another basis. discussion, Ben, and I don't want to um, hijack this no. other interesting discussion. Marim, um, so you, which part of the brain is it 
particularly so the targeted. the area that Dr. Spiegel showed you at the very beginning, the area that turns on and becomes very activated when healthy people think sad thoughts, that's the this area the we target. So deep in the brain. Singular gyrate, yeah. So okay. the subgenual cingulate. These people's subgenual cingulate is on all the time. Well, uh, it's in an overactive state. <laughs> The, the only main point I was, was trying to make with the other discussion was the fact that the relief of the pain, that part of the experience besides turning that off, is the, the engagement in something that's more than them. And that that is, um, I think, pleasurable because it allows them to be outside of the pain, but it's more than just absence of pain. Um, it strikes me in thinking about His Holiness' response earlier about the difference between compassion for oneself and someone else, the issue of choice, and Brian's idea about new experiments. It strikes me in our discussion of craving and suffering that the key issue is not the state itself, not the state of desire, not the pain or the sadness, but the control over the state. And that one of the key issues in consciousness is our subjective experience that we make choices and control things and the neurobiological skepticism about whether that's not just a product of brain function. But it seems to me the challenge is to find ways of studying neurobiologically the control mechanisms, not simply the states themselves, and that that might be a way to come a little bit closer to these common understandings. <laughs> Liking and wanting, so that you may end up, because of habituation and craving, to desperately want something that you don't like anymore? <laughs> yes, I think it would be similar. Yeah. Since we're talking about, on the one hand, stimulating the brain, on the other hand, a kind of complex issue of self and other and how we relate to other, the phenomenology of compassion and thinking of new experiments, I'm wondering if it would be possible and or interesting to see the impact on the brain, let's say, of an ordinary person by the presence of an adept. In other words, if you see how someone struggles to develop compassion on their own, and then you invite a great yogi uh, to be present and just see, uh, because that's a strong belief, that's a strong conviction uh, in India, in Tibet, that meditating in the presence of a master, in fact, impacts us profoundly. And that would be very interesting. It would also uh, back to the cultural issues that you raised, get us a little bit out of the individual brain sort of model of theorizing and look at resonance and interpersonal interaction. It would be a lot of fun to hear about that. Cool. <laughs> we, we did do that experiment. Um, this was about maybe three or four years ago. We've been doing a series of studies of Machu. And, uh, 
He has been a wonderful person to work with because he's both scientist and subject and can help us in guiding this work. But one of the very first things we did, maybe four years ago, was to find the most obstreperous faculty member on the Berkeley campus. <laughs> there were many nominees. That was other than you. Yeah, well, the most obstreperous one, we wanted them to have a conversation with Matthew about reincarnation, which we knew they would think was totally foolish. And the most obstreperous one of all, he kept laying down so many conditions that finally you couldn't have him participate. So we got number two. <laughs> and they started out with uh, Matthew being his usual low-level, this is uh, a collaborative research with uh, Robert Levinson at Berkeley. So Matthew is showing his usual level of calmness in terms of his physiology. And this fellow was highly aroused and a very high heart rate, blood pressure. Over the course of 15 minutes, he became calm. And he said to me, and he didn't know why I'd asked him to do this, he said to me afterwards, I just couldn't fight with him. There was something about him I couldn't fight with him. If I could just take one minute more, it seems to me there's two things that we can profit from in our contact with uh, Buddhist theory and practice. And of course, I think psychology has much more to learn than neuroscience at this point, because we we're much more on the same level. But one is a complexity of thinking about the nature of consciousness and interpersonal relations that we don't find really in most Western thought so that it provokes us to think differently. Second, and quite different, is a set of exercises, of practices, that are interesting to study what effects they have on human beings. It's really two, they're not unrelated, of course, but they're really quite separate, and they lead to very different kinds of experiments. Great. Brian, any thoughts about that? <clears throat> Brian is the, the interesting situation of being a psychologist and a neuroscientist all at the same time. How does this sound to you? It's confusing. Um, I, I, I mean, I just see a lot of possibility here because uh, we're talking about doing experiments, looking at people's brains when they're interacting, right? And this is happening now. This isn't just science fiction. We can see that when somebody intends to cooperate with somebody else, in a very basic economic game, we can actually predict that based on brain activation. We can look at certain circuits, these circuits linked that, that, that Howard talked about, linked to excitement, linked to wanting, as Matthew was mentioning. And, and, and we can see activation in those circuits prior to helping that person out. And so so that, that signals from the brain an intent to cooperate. Now, this is a very basic, basic, basic effect, but it's a start because it suggests that we can think about the brain in interaction as well as as an individual entity, so as you were mentioning, Anne. So I, th I think that's very exciting. One of the great themes in our, in our study, in our department, is about the power of the situation. And that uh, the individual never takes an act 
without some context, and that uh, there have been raging debates in our field as to whether uh, the individual's personality is more determinative of the act that will follow, or whether the context uh, that, you're, uh, that you observe the person in will pretty much determine this. And I understand that that's also a very deep uh, theme, very fundamental. It's not uh, in, in uh, Buddhist tradition, and it's not something we've had a lot of opportunity to explore. But in these, as I've been listening to these discussions of handling one's own inner thoughts, uh, it, it is, seems to me very important that the context you do it in, uh, the notion of retreat and, and people getting together and doing these things seems unbelievably important. And I think there are many things for us to continue discussing. And I really agree with your comment, Paul, that this is something that psychology departments are perhaps ready to benefit from in a, a almost immediate way uh, compared to some of the more technical, abstract parts of, uh, of the field. So one of the challenges here, it seems to me, are building hypotheses that are neurally based, even if interpreted as psychological level, but at the same time are informed by Buddhist practice. The idea that we can learn from one another how to create better hypotheses to create better experiments. That's something that I don't think is done or hasn't been done nearly enough. And surely that will drag us both into the collaboration. It is the psychologist's bias that um, understanding the basic structure of the problem and understanding behavior and quantifying it is a necessity before the neuroscientist can make any serious yeah. progress. I'm sure that's right. <laughs> that's, uh, I, I didn't really know that he was that strong a psychologist. I, but I think he's right. Now you know. <laughs> Janet, any, any, any additional thoughts? has taken a really great turn and and I think it's very exciting um, especially this the ideas about relation how fundamental relationality is uh, from the Buddhist perspective and I think that's a, a huge contribution that Buddhism can make and note that it's not just from Buddhist practice but it's also from Buddhist worldview and Buddhist philosophy so and I think a great it's a it's for me at least a hugely important issue of how things are contextualized really determines the object that you're studying. That's that's a fundamental Buddhist point, and I think if that's being brought into um, these kinds of experiments that we're starting to dream up, uh, this is I think very exciting. I, I want to say that I thought that Anne's idea was a really really interesting one. That how the the mere presence of another person is infectious. Again, that's that's the kind of attitude that that's the kind of idea that comes out of a kind of Buddhist imaginal kind of space, and I think that's really well worth pursuing. It's, it has in, in enormous uh, ethical implications. Too. It Matthew, you other th uh, another thought, Matthew. Well, you have this idea that the, the messenger becomes the message himself. Uh, if someone like Sarnia speaks about having good heart. Most people who say that, they say, of course, yes, so what? But if someone who himself is an immense heart says that, suddenly there is a resonance because you see the authenticity of what is being said and what the person is, uh, is an adequation. And that is the strength of the living example. And the living example, often in the, in the, in the West, we have this idea of the spiritual teacher as a dominating figure that's going to manipulate everything, including your bank account. <laughs> So, 
In fact, a real spiritual teacher is someone who shows you what, what is possible, what, what could be the transformation, what lies at, at the end of the path, so is a source of inspiration, because suddenly you see the potential and you identify this potential within yourself and within others. So that is a source of inspiration, and that's how also the quality of the person becomes obvious and makes you yearn to act somehow develop the conditions to accomplish those qualities. Excellent. I was just going to observe that it seems to me in this part of the conversation we have really in a very natural way segued into a kind of holistic dialogue where we're not hung up on how are we going to put together the first person inquiry and the third person objective inquiry is kind of happening and that also seems wonderful and, and really exciting. Wonderful. I'd like now to turn to Brian briefly, if you will, Brian, uh, to come and summarize for us. And then after Brian summarizes, to have a last word from His Holiness, if that's possible. Brian, would you like to come over? Or you uh, can sit there, You know, please. I can do it from here, if that's, it seems, seems a little easier. Uh, you know, we've all been witnesses to this together. And, my, and I hope you'll be summarizing uh, for yourselves, and, and I'm sure you'll be doing it at least as effectively as I, as I can. I, I would like to say that one of the striking things for me in listening to this conversation is neuroscientists and psychologists and Western uh, science relies very heavily on models. And there was a great discussion in uh, David's uh, introduction and throughout about the notions of this object connects to that object and it drives it in the following way. And these models end up being the repository of much of how we keep our knowledge and communicate it to students and so forth. And our science is filled with models. And, and that's not widely used. It, it is a, almost a hallmark of Western science. But I want to say that on the stage tonight, there really um, is a model that is beyond all of that. And I uh, came into this when Bill asked me a number of years ago, uh, a year ago, kind of wondering. But the, the model of his holiness and his openness and the way he's leading uh, his people is just such a remarkable model to me personally that I wanted to thank you for the opportunity uh, uh, by your personal model and your leadership and, and uh, to give us all the opportunity to be here and have this discussion. So thank you very much. The, the other, uh, let me just remind you of a few things because I made notes during the, during the meeting. Uh, at, at a number of time, at a number of points, um, I was struck about how uh, His Holiness and others suggested that people should do a little experiment, maybe uh, control their attention a little bit, Matthew would say, or practice uh, in a case that was safe when you were talking about feeling compassion and, and pain, you, you would say, well, you would feel it, but in a way you knew you weren't actually going to get hurt, so that against the future time, when perhaps you would be hurt, you would be prepared for it. And this notion of training is very high uh, personally for me in my own thinking, and so therefore, as you 
were all discussing this possibility. It seemed very important to me. And the notion that one could have a small amount of protective training and uh, in order to be prepared for things is something that as a parent and as somebody who cares about other people, we all, I think, share that feeling. And that it was very nice to hear that come across. Uh, and I thought that that, then that, that protection uh, and caring about other people was, just came across enormously importantly as we started towards the end to discuss the issues of um, protecting first ourselves and then one another and that the impact that we all have in sharing with one another a common stage, a common auditorium, a common community, and a common world seemed uh, something that we all need to keep working towards. And I very much appreciated the way you and all of your colleagues helped uh, us. And I hope we made some contributions as well in seeing that. And, and uh, the last thing I would say is we're over on our side. We're a very practical bunch of people. We, you know, we like to know, you know, where exactly do you cut this thing and how exactly do you place that stimulator and so forth. And I'm very much hoping that these general exchanges that we've had will end up with such practical applied things that uh, benefit us all. And I thank you, Bill, and, and the sponsors of the medical school for uh, letting us have this conversation, make that progress. And thank you all. Perhaps a last word from His Holiness. Mm. Oh. That's a geek. That's a shock. And it's a geek. Because we just geek, 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 geek. Chat, so on. Oh. Um, we have had long discussions since morning and uh, been listening to new presentations, new ideas. His Holiness was saying that as he was listening to the next one, he was forgetting the previous ones. <laughs> Uh, one strong feeling that I really had um, as a result of this uh, exchange is that um, <clears throat> you know at this gathering we have um, uh, scientists on the one side and uh, uh, people representing the Buddhist tradition on the other. And as a result of this long exchange, one strong feeling that I really had is that there is definitely uh, a potential for real interface. And in fact, um, I've had <coughs> similar conversations over the last 15, 16 years uh, and ongoing dialogues with scientists. And uh, one of the things about this particular dialogue is that it has really confirmed, uh, reinforced my belief that all these ongoing discussions are really leading to some more beneficial direction. So they finally, uh, I believe, you see, they, through such discussion, uh, we may 
finds uh, some contribution for betterment of the world, happier humanity, and not only human beings, but also the other uh, different species of mammals or birds or all other, <laughs> eventually uh, getting some benefit. Because sometimes we not only create problem in ourselves, but also create a lot of suffering on other animals. Once our, ourselves, you see, becoming more compassionate, uh, perhaps I think the whole world get some benefit. <laughs> of course, through compassion, if we, I think, expect through compassion, all problems will solve. That is unrealistic. Problem always remain, but at least little minimize, yeah, reduce. So uh, that's my hope and my belief. So this kind of uh, discussion, I think, will continue. So that way, I think some contribution for betterment of the humanity. Thank you. enormous thanks to His Holiness, His good heart, a good heart showing us what's possible, a good heart transforming us, a good heart inspiring us, a good heart that's creating a resonance here that's remarkable and terribly important. We'll start slowly, but we'll move robustly, and our greatest hope is much more than a foolish compassion, but a true compassion for each other for the world, and for all those sentient beings of which we're all so fond. Thank you. If the morning participants will come up, if you'll come up on stage, the morning participants, that would be great, the morning panelists. Just a couple more minutes uh, of... Uh, Interaction, come on up. This chance for the, His Holiness to thank the panelists. Dean also coming. Yes, he's coming. Phil, Phil Pizzo, if you could come back up, please.
così c'è. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I want to um, just take a moment more of your time. Events like this uh, require a lot of planning and um, participation. Uh, and I just want to ask a couple of people to rise if they're in the room. Um, so we can thank them. Um, Dr. Kathy Gillum, Neil Vargas, <laughs> Kristen Goldthorpe, all from the Dean's Office who just contributed so tremendously to this effort. And of course, I also want to thank Elaine Enos and her remarkable staff um, for all the work that they have done. Now, we've heard a lot today about hijacking um, and transformation. Uh, I would say uh, about a year ago, I hijacked um, Dr. Mobley's brain uh, and engaged him in this process, but he has become transformed uh, as a consequence. And And I would argue that um, each of us who have been participants in this extraordinary day uh, are different this afternoon than they, we were this morning because we too have become transformed. And whether you have participated in the panel, um, whether you have led the vision as His Holiness has, or whether you're a member of this community, my hope is that you will all go out to be ambassadors for future discourse and discussion. This morning I reflected on the polarizations that exist here in this country and indeed around the world. And we've divided ourselves into red states and blue states, theocracies and democracies. We've lost the ability to have discourse. And whether it's the revival of a Scopes trial in Dover, Pennsylvania, or um, whether it is a group of neuroscientists who are reflecting negatively on the visit of His Holiness to their conference, I hope that each can become more enlightened, that they'll listen and learn as we have today. It's our responsibility to preserve the traditions of our past into the future. And whether it's the greatness of science that will so transform the way we think in the future, it's incumbent on us to protect it and to sustain it. And so too is it our responsibility to sustain the future of faith and religion. And I hope that the world will become enlightened enough to support the tradition of Tibetan Buddhism in Tibet.
it's our tolerance for each other that will really help to preserve the world that each of us must live in. With that, I say thank you all for coming, and I will turn the final part of the program to Dr. Mobley, our director and leader. Thank you, Phil. <clears throat> just take one more minute to say thanks again to His Holiness, to Tupton Jempa, who is my friend and who I admire very greatly. Thank you, Tupton. Thanks to the panelists from the morning and the afternoon. Thanks to the planning committee members who've given so much of their time and energy. I appreciate so much all that you've done. Thanks to Peggy Pizzo. And, and thanks to Tenzin Tathong, my roommate in Dharamsala. And thanks to all of you for being here, because you're the point of the whole exercise. You are with us. You're part of us. You're a community. We love you, and we want to work for you, and we want to make your lives as rich and full as possible, free of suffering, free of unhealthy desires, free to do the things that you need to do to enjoy your life to the fullest. I know there are a lot of questions out there, and I'm glad for that. I have a lot myself. Please hold on to those questions. Please ask those questions of one another. When you see me, when you see neuroscientists, when you see Stanford faculty members, ask them. Let's get something bubbling here that will carry us forward in a genuine, sweet dialogue between neuroscience and Buddhist scholars. Thank you very much, and good afternoon. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.